Friends, we began this uh, service by speaking about the rest that God offers His children. Uh, with God, rest ye merry gentlemen. The song we have just sung included more language about resting. And I wonder if you picked up on the words of, we have, of the song we have just sung. Let us find our rest. Not at first mattress Baptist. It's a way of saying let us find our rest in sleeping or just taking time off. But let us find our rest in thee. In the Lord. I pray that, friends, uh, that each of us would experience what it means to find rest in the Lord. When uh, a child is born, uh, we are often anxious to hear, what is the name? What name will the parents give the child? And some parents give just one name. Other parents might give two names. Rarely will you hear of someone giving three names. Well, this morning, I want to talk to you about a child that was born who was given four names. This morning, we want to look at a a passage of Scripture that speaks about the birth of Jesus and the names that were given to him or were predicted for him. This morning, I invite you to open... Uh, God's Word to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. I will be reading from verse 1 to verse 7. And uh, if you are new to our congregation, if you're visiting with us, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. Open the Bible to page number 573 and uh, read along with us this passage. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to grab the Bible that's in the pews there and just take it home. We'd love for you to have it and and be able to read it, uh, to read God's Word. God's Word this morning says the following to each and every one of us. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, He has made glory as the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Would you join 
with me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word. Our Father, we praise you and we thank you that you have revealed to us plans, great plans, plans of restoration, plans of great reversal from a, from a darkness and a gloominess and a, and a world filled with anguish to an experience of light, an experience of peace, an experience of joy. We pray this morning that these promises that you have made long ago, that they would be experiences that we get to experience in our own hearts and lives through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. This passage we have just read begins with the words, but. And when you hear the word but, it can mean an, an, a lot of things. If, if you talk to your children and you tell them to do something and the answer you get back starts with a word but, uh, you know that it's not a pleasant answer. You know that it's not going to go well. You're going to have to do some re-coaching, some redirecting, some some re-talking here because clearly what you have asked for and spoken has not been received well. Uh, the word but in the passage we have just read, however, uh, has a totally different aim and effect. Uh, it's, it's a positive way of starting this answer, this, this message. It's a positive but because it announces a great reversal. In the previous chapter, in chapter 8, God announced the failure of the people to get out of trouble on their own. They have tried. Actually, it's because they have tried to fix their problems apart from God that God has actually sent them into greater darkness and anguish. Um, King Ahaz, in chapter 7, hoped to get out of trouble. On, their, on his own strength, on his own planning, on relying on a foreign nation to get them out of trouble. And God said, it's not going to work. So God sent Israel, the people of Judah, uh, into a time of, of great despair. But then chapter 9 hits and starts with the words, but. Now this principle remains true today as well, friends. This, the fruit of us trying to live apart from God is that we are going to be thrust into greater darkness, greater gloom, greater anguish. The people of Judah's time were told that despite their hopes to get themselves out of their mess, despite King Ahaz's reliance on human politics, what they will experience, God said, is that they will experience more gloom, more anguish. And this has been the message of chapter 8. But now in chapter 9, there's this but. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In verse 2, we read that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. In verse 3, we read that God will multiply the nation and the people will rejoice with a great joy. Now, all these promises in verse 1, 2, and 3, they're all in the past tense. Did you notice that? It, it, it doesn't mean that they already happened at the time Isaiah wrote this book. Uh, actually, they have not happened. Actually, at the time of Isaiah writing this book, 
the anguish, the gloom was still in the future. But the promise now is given in the past tense to show the certainty that these things will surely come to pass. That after the gloom, after the darkness, after the anguish, a light will shine on His people, on God's people. That God will multiply the nation. That God will bring them reasons to have a great, great joy. As we keep reading, there's three reasons why the times of gloom and anguish will be replaced by great joy. And the reasons are in verse 4, 5, and 6. There's three reasons. In verse 4, um, by the way, each of the verses, verse 4, 5, and 6, they start with the word for. Did you notice that? Verse 4, uh, word four, 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 three times. That's a, that's a clue when you, we read the Bible that we might be giving reasons why something is going to happen. And sure enough, that's exactly what we have in these verses. Reasons why, God, why God's people will be able to rejoice. Verse 4, God promises to break the yoke of bondage. In verse 5, God promises to put an end to conflict by burning up the war equipment. In verse 6, we have the third reason, and this is a bit unexpected. Why can God's people, uh, what, what will be the reason that they can rejoice? How can God bring about the promises to end the darkness, uh, to put an end to the anguish, the gloom? What will they have? Verse 6 tells us that they will have a birth of a child. Verse 6, for, uh, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The, the child is the, the third and the climactic reason why God's people are promised and they can be certain that they will experience a, a change, a reversal, a good reversal. Why? Because a child will be born. Now in Isaiah's time, in the book of Isaiah as well, uh, this sign of a birth of a child is a significant issue. Remember um, in chapter 7, Ahaz, when, when Isaiah came to him and told him not to rely on, on the uh, 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 allegiance or the, the uh, help from Assyria, but to rely on the Lord, Isaiah gave Ahaz and said, ask of the Lord for a sign. And Ahaz said, oh, I won't ask for the Lord for a sign. It was an act of faithlessness. It was an act of, of wanting to rely more on his plans rather than on what the Lord could do for his people. So I'm not going to ask for a sign. And Isaiah told him, well, the Lord will give you a sign, even though you didn't ask for one. And the sign is, the virgin shall be with child. The birth of a child in the dialogue between Isaiah and Ahaz, the faithless king, the birth of a child was going to be a sign that the Lord uh, brought, offered to his people. It's amazing that just two chapters later, here in chapter 9, the birth of a child shows up again. And this time, it is the climax of why God's people will be able to experience light and multiplication, growth, and joy. Why? Because of a child that would be born. But why would this promised child be such a big deal? How do we know that the coming of this big of this child is a big deal. And this passage describes four names given to the child. Names in the Old Testament are not used merely for naming purposes, uh, just like we might use them today just to name someone. Names in the Old Testament communicated significance, a special mission 
or someone's character. So when we look at these four names that are given to this child, um, we are called not simply to look how we can call this child. We are called to see and consider how to regard this child. His names tell us who he is, what he's about. And I pray, friends, this morning as we look specifically at these four names, that these four names would increase in us ways in which we can adore Christ, ways in which we can regard Christ. So this morning, let's look at the, these four names. The rest of the sermon will really be an, an unpacking of the four names given to this child that was promised. Um, the first name is Wonderful Counselor. Today we are used to hear the word counselor quite often in increasing ways. Children at school have School counselors who guide them in their academic affairs. Uh, there are counseling services for various difficulties we experience in life. And people go to counseling to work through issues. But the word counselor that is used here is, uh, described, uh, is used to describe this promised son uh, has a different emphasis than just um, counseling people through trouble. The word for counselor is not simply uh, someone who gives advice uh, or gives direction in a troubling situation. In the time of Isaiah, counselors were used often to give the king direction to lead God's people in God's ways. Uh, the counselors in Isaiah's time were people who were called to give spiritual direction to determine what is right or wrong based on God's revealed word. Listen to one of the promises that God gave at the beginning of Isaiah. In chapter 1, when God promised that he will restore the nation, in chapter 1, verse 26, God said, And I will restore your judges as at first, and your counselors as at the beginning. And afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness and faithful city. Did you hear, hear how the... Now, the Lord promises to give his people counselors, judges, who would counsel and, God, and lead God's people rightly, and afterwards they would be called a city of righteousness, a faithful city. This means that the counselors were called to lead God's people into righteousness, into faithfulness. They were spiritual advisors who led God's people in God's path. Well, the, the first name of this child is that he will be called a counselor because he will lead God's people into faithfulness and righteousness. Now, let me ask you, dear friend, who do you listen for? I'm sorry, who do you listen to for what you want to pursue in life? Or what do you value? Who do you listen to for what's worth pursuing? Who pricks your interest? to hear what's worthy when you consider to make decisions and on what basis uh, you make them. How do you think through that? Who do you go to for counsel? Would Jesus make it in that list? Well, you might say, well, pastor, uh, the Bible doesn't include specific counsel for my daily decisions in a black and white kind of directive way. Thou shall not do this today, but do it tomorrow or or those kind of things. It's true, the Bible is not given to tell us uh, the details of 
of everyday nitty-bitty decisions we have to make, but the Bible was given and is filled with God's revelation. It is God's revelation that helps us for everything we need for life and for godliness. Jesus Christ was given to us to be a counselor who would guide us into God's paths of righteousness. Today, people would rather listen to popular opinion for their counsel or to the so-called experts of the day. Oh, if someone claims to be an expert, they must know what they're talking about and they must be worthy of listening to their counsel and advice. Other people might listen to their own self-inflated reason. But God wants His people to know that if they are going to experience the restoration, the, the, the great reversal that God had promised them, what they need is, a, is someone who would be a great counselor for them. A promised son will counsel God's people. But He's not just any counselor. Uh, we are actually told that He is a wonderful counselor. Now, this word wonderful needs some explanation. You see, the word wonderful, we can use it in all kinds of ways. Oftentimes, when we say something is wonderful, we mean something is great. Something is, is meeting our expectations and even exceeding our expectations. But in the, in the Bible, the word used for wonderful uh, is used in some peculiar ways that cannot be described with just human cause and effect language. Uh, the word for wonderful is oftentimes used in the Old Testament to actually describe the word wonder. Uh, here's a few examples where this word wonderful or wonder has been used in the Old Testament. Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Well, when this word wonder is used in Exodus, it's not talking simply to, to human actions that can be humanly explained. It's talking to all the great things that God has done with His people to get them out of Egypt, to bring the plagues against Egypt, to walk them through the, the, um, the Red Sea, to rescue them from the bondage to Egypt. These were the great deeds of the Lord. They're, they're wonders. They're wonders in the sense that they cannot be explained by Human uh, reason alone, they are supernatural. Here's an, the same word is used uh, again in the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. This means that the word wonder or wonderful in the Hebrew language, is often used to describe something that's supernatural. Uh, he is that which surpasses human thought and power. This means when we think about a wonderful counselor, he is not just a great counselor. He's so much more than just a great counselor. Oh, friends, he's a counselor with a wisdom that is beyond human, a supernatural wisdom, a, a wisdom that comes from above, not from below. He has a wisdom that is far above the human wisdom. So if the child born in Bethlehem is a counselor who gives counsel that is above human, this means, dear friends, this means that the counsel he may give us 
or the counsel he does give us may oftentimes take us on a different path than what our earthly bound minds would lead us. It means that he may take us on paths of faith that cannot be explained by the human reason alone. His counsel is not based on what we can see and feel and experience. Otherwise, his counsel would not be beyond natural. God's ways of wonder are often, friends, are often not intuitive to our earthbound minds. So when you hear the name, Wonderful Counselor, don't just think a great counselor who will please our earthly focused minds. No, his name means that he is someone who is guiding us to live by faith in the paths of God, in the ways of God. And if wonderful means simply what, I and, what you and I can simply explain with our human minds, his counsel to our, our earthly bound minds may not come across as, faith, as great. It may come across as foolish. It may come across as, as, a, as a big step of faith, but yet the great counselor, the wonder counselor, is calling his people, is leading his people to live and act by faith. Do you trust his counsel? Do you trust him when his counsel may seem different than what makes sense to our earthbound minds? He's also not just a wonderful counselor. He's also a mighty God. Now, it's shocking to hear that the name given to this child who is born, a baby, he is also named Mighty God. Bible interpreters try to go around this in various ways. They might say, well, this is, uh, we, can't, we can't actually believe this. This is just flamboyant language. This is just a way to exaggerate something, to show that something is really super great. He's mighty God. Oh, no, friends. The words of Scripture say he is called mighty God. And he's, not just, he's called mighty God because he is God. The child promised to be born would be called mighty God. The Old Testament points this out uh, elsewhere. The name mighty God shows up just in the very next chapter, in Isaiah chapter 10, um, where... God says a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. This is not just flamboyant language. To describe God as a mighty God is to refer to God himself. And here this child is called by God's name. He is God. Here's we ha- here we have an, uh, an example of the Old Testament mystery that someone who will be born from the line of David A child to be born with human flesh will also be God. This is one of the Old Testament references that speak about the birth of Jesus as being the incarnation of God. Friends, we as Christians believe that the one born in Bethlehem is God himself. The title Mighty God was often used in context of battle, uh, of conquests. This means that the God who is born, who takes on human flesh... Uh, who is promised in the book of Isaiah. He is a God who is described as a conquering God, a mighty God to win in battles. And in light of the promises we 
read earlier in verses 4 and 5 when God says that, that the oppressor, the, the rod of the oppressor will be broken, the yoke will be taken away. This, when, when, when we're told that the, the war um, equipment will be all burnt up, we understand why, because the mighty God is showing up. The one who is mighty in battle, through the birth of a child, God is going to win the battle. At Christmas, we celebrate not merely the birth of a child, but the incarnation of, of the mighty God, the Son whom God has given to us. He was born into our world because He took upon Himself the human flesh to be called mighty God for the sake of winning the battle that we have been trapped into, that we could not win on our own, that we could not free by our own strength. Friends, the Son of God was born to be the means by which God breaks the oppression, the bondage of His people who are trapped in the curse of rebellion, sin, and death. God wins His battle when He took on the human flesh. He lived a perfect life. This this child who was born lived a perfect life that God requires from all of us. Yet he was crucified and died. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead to show that he indeed, he's a mighty God, victorious over death, victorious over sin, victorious over the, the penalty of the rebellion that we have incurred against God. Oh, friend, the Christian faith declares that God rescues people from the curse of sin and death through the giving of his son to be born into the human race. Friends, God would... God gave us His Son so that His rescue mission would be accomplished, not through our effort, but through what God provided for us in Jesus. So to say that Jesus is a mighty God is to declare that He is the God who is victorious in the battle for rescuing God's people from their sin. Friend, I wonder if, I wonder if you have experienced God's victory in Jesus Christ. Apply to your own heart. A victory over sin and death. A victory over the bondage of sin. You might say, well, we are still going to face death, each and every one of us. That's true. Physically, we're all going to die. But we face death knowing that it is a, it is a conquered enemy. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the mighty God, would take on human flesh so that he could experience death and so that he could conquer death so that through his victory we might be made winners victorious with God oh friends is the victory of the mighty God who was born in Bethlehem a victory you are sharing in is it a victory that you are delighting in for those of us who are already believers when we reflect upon the child born to us, when we reflect upon the son given to us, I wonder if you reflect on his mightiness as a source for the battle that each and every one of us continue to have with sin, with fear, with oppression, with bondage. We may still find these elements in us. To be a Christian does not mean that the battle with sin is gone. It is true that the power of sin has been broken on our behalf. And the penalty for sin has been paid for, but the presence of sin is still with us in our old nature. And we still fight against it. 
That's why in our service, we often have a time of confessing sin. Because we recognize that even though as, as Christ's followers, we still battle against sin. But friends, God has given us a child, a son, who is a mighty God, who has come to, to be victorious over sin and death and rebellion. And it is to this Jesus that we can come every time we, we find ourselves trapped back into, into the bondage of sin and feeling like we have failed again. It is to a mighty God that we come, to a Jesus who was born like us, born in our nature to, to win for us on our behalf. Friends, Jesus is a wonderful counselor. Jesus is a mighty God. But he's also called the third name, Everlasting Father. This title might puzzle us. How come a child to be born, a child to, a son to be given, he is now given the name Everlasting Father? In our human experience, it takes a while for a child to be born, to grow up, to become an adult, uh, and then eventually to become a father. But this child, from, his very, from, from the moment he's born, the name given to him is Everlasting Father. Oh, friends, this name uh, requires some explanation. First of all, we should not assume that Jesus is described here as Everlasting Father uh, the same way as God the Father is described as an Everlasting Father. This title here of Everlasting Father does not describe Jesus in his relationship to his Father. Otherwise, we would confuse the persons of the Trinity. No, the Son is given. He is given as a Son. But he is called Everlasting Father in his relationship to us. Even though eternally, in, in his relationship to God the Father, he's always going to be a Son. Always. He's the eternal son. But in relationship to us, to his people, he takes on the role, the qualities of a father. So what does it mean that Jesus is called everlasting father? I love how one of the Bible interpreters put it. The word father designates a quality of the Messiah with respect to his people. In Isaiah 63, 16, the people say to God, For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. In the Bible, when we see God described acting towards us as a Father, it brings up several meanings, several implications or nuances. It points to His concern for the helpless. It points to His deep care and compassion that that God has for His people as a father cares and has compassion upon His children. It points to, to the one who has given us life, the one who has begotten us. It points to the source of life, humanly speaking. It also points to His care or discipline for His children. It also points to the loyal response the father can expect from His children. So the imagery of a father points to how Jesus wants to relate to us. He is a son to his Father, eternally speaking, but he acts towards us as a father. 
So in Jesus, we have the promises of eternal care, eternal provision, eternal compassion, eternal protection. Jesus can also carry the name eternal father for us because in Jesus, we have a new life. Through him, we are begotten into the new life, into an eternal life. So what does it mean to call Jesus the son who is given to us, eternal father? It means that we can come to him with all our needs, with all our cares, with all our troubles, as to a father who is ready to protect us. As to a father who will never die. Just thinking of Pam this morning or Kim who are grieving the loss of their earthly father. And all the, all the memories and the experiences that a good father brings into the life of a, of a child and a teenager and a person. Friends, Jesus is the everlasting father. His relation to us. His responsibility towards us will never, ever be extinguished. He is an everlasting Father. Yes, He's born as a child. Yes, He's given to us as a son. But He is an everlasting Father. And finally, the final call, the final name that He's given is a Prince of Peace. A prince in ancient times exercised governing responsibilities over a region. A prince administered on behalf of the king the agenda of the kingdom. To say that this child to be born would be the prince of peace means that he is the one who ensures that peace will dwell in the land where his kingdom reigns. In the storyline of the Bible, the lack of peace enters the world very early on in Genesis. In the garden, what was created good by God, complete, has been disrupted by the disobedience of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. When they listened to the serpent and rebelled against God's command. From that moment, all creation has been sunk deep into a curse. So that nothing in this world operates the way God designed it to operate. Sin disrupted our peace. Our peace, first and foremost, with God, our creator. Our peace with our world. Our peace with one another. And our peace with ourselves. But this child, dear friends, is called Prince of Peace. God is planning, is promising to reverse the curse, the curse of conflict, the curse of of brokenness, the curse of incompleteness, the curse of separation, the curse of tension. God promises to reverse the curse of all that through this child. He will be called the Prince of Peace. In Isaiah's time, the people experience the exact opposite of peace. Oppression, destruction, anxiety, fears. These were experienced not only personally by the people at that time, but nationally by the whole nation of Israel. Yet God promised to give us a son. And through the birth of, his, of this child, peace would be given. Peace would be granted. But our society loves the notion of peace. And I'm so glad that as Christians, we can share in this one longing with our society. We can share in this longing for peace. But where society and Christianity part ways is how we get this peace. The source of this peace. Society believes that if we just just put our efforts together, if we just drop our differences, if if we can 
put more resources together, if we can bring more education, if we can bring more stuff together, we, will, we can create a peaceful society. We might be able to create certain effects of peace. But we cannot create lasting peace. We cannot create deep-seated peace. We may create social manifestations of peace. But who can bring peace to a troubled soul? What medication? What counseling? What, ex- what human experience can we bring about to, to, de- to deal with a deep-seated bondage that our own human nature is is caught into? What social program has the power to deal with the anxieties and the fears of the heart? I love how one commentator said, not only must man be at peace with God, but more importantly, God must be at peace with us. You see, our greatest problem is not only the peace, the, the peace that we lack with God as if we are the ones who initiate the, the problem with God. It's as if we have problems with God. And the Bible tells us that God has problems with us. God is at enmity with us. Sure, we have rebelled against Him. We were the ones who pulled the trigger in turning our backs against Him, but the peace that we need is not simply a peace that we need with God, but it's also a peace that we need God to have with us. And that peace, dear friends, that peace can only be made right and granted by this child to be born in a human flesh, to take upon himself the penalty of our rebellion so that peace may be granted to those who have rebelled against the Creator. When that sin has been removed, then there can be peace. As the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the child born is the Son of God. He is the mighty God, so that through His death and through His resurrection, God can enter into a peace treaty with us. Because of Jesus, God can now pardon sinners who repent and trust in Christ. Outside of Jesus, God cannot offer forgiveness. The only means for peace to be granted between God and us is for this child, God himself, to die, be resurrected, and through him, through faith in him, God can award that peace to any and every one of us. Friend, the one born in Bethlehem was born to be our peace. In him, we have peace with God. In him, God grants us peace that can guard our hearts and our minds when, when the outside oppression, when the fears and the anxieties remain relentless. Oh, friends, in Christ, God grants us peace. This morning, we have focused on these four names given to the child born in Bethlehem. The son God has given to his people Because he is born, this child is fully human, just like any of us. But he's no ordinary child. And his four names here reveal who this child is for us. God gave him, God gave us his son. 
God gave him as a son so that he might be for us a wonder of a counselor, a mighty God winning battles for his people, an everlasting father, and he is also the Prince of Peace. May this child that we celebrate at Christmas, may we treasure him, may we delight in him, dear friends, in these roles, in these qualities that he has come to bring to us. I pray that this, the, the experience of Christ in these four names would be the experience that each of us have this Christmas season. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, you have given us your Son. A Son who is so much more than what any of us could be on our own. A Son that is eternal. A Son who is a counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father and a Prince of Peace. We pray that each of these experiences, each of these realms that this child brings to us. We pray that we would experience them in fullness this Christmas season. And Father, we pray that we might delight in the realities that your Son has brought to us. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.